Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. Today on the podcast, we've got a panel discussion and we're talking about complaints. No one likes to receive a complaint. And when we do get one, it's really important. It's handled responsibly, consistently, and we minimize reputational and financial risks to our business. In this session, we're going to talk about what it's like to get a complaint, how to handle it to successful conclusion, and some of the common pitfalls that firms experience and how you can prepare yourself for when a complaint arrives. I'm joined by Christine O'Rourke, Head of Conduct Standards at RICS, Peter Habert, Director of Policy at the Property Ombudsman, and I'm joined by two small business residential surveyors, Michael Holden and Angela Chamberlain. So let's just start off with um, welcome you all to the panel. Would you like to introduce yourself? Let's start with Michael. Michael, who's a uh, my first returner, I think, on my podcast. Yeah, uh, it's good to see you again and speak to you, uh, Marion. You know, and it's nice to meet uh, other colleagues in the virtual room as well. So um, uh, I've done 31 years as uh, Chartered Surveyor now, and um, I'm in a privileged uh, position uh, that, um, apart from being able to hand the practice over to four of my sons to take over, you know, the running, and that's starting to happen now. There are several other uh, young surveyors, the next generation coming in, and uh, it's something I'm really privileged and proud about that. There's 17 of us now uh, in the practice, and we started uh, from a cold start. Uh, I got laid off from the University of Bolton, of all places, uh, eight years ago, and um, took uh, my redundancy uh, money and the compromise agreements. So I was saying, what about those? <laughs> I then built the practice from there. And uh, we specialise in uh, high-end residential building surveys, but the general practice as well. Um, and we're doing a lot of project management. So we've got an amazing project in Windermere at the moment that we're looking at and acting as a uh, project manager for that. So uh, a varied career to date, uh, but uh, sort of ending in SME territory. And Angela. Hello, Angela. Hi, yes, I'm a child surveyor working together with my husband. I have been practicing since the early 90s and focusing on residential surveys and valuations. We first set up our, our first business in 98 and have been practicing in South Devon. So it's just the two of us, husband and wife team. Amazingly, that seems to work. Uh, and we've been um, working together a lot of our sort of working lives, um, having met originally at uni. So little happy ever after story. Oh, <laughs> heart emojis coming your way. Great to have you here, Angela. And we've got Chrissy. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, Marion. Thanks for inviting me on. So I'm Head of Conduct Standards at RICS. I've worked there for about six years now. So most of that was in regulation, um, looking at the kind of complaints that come in about surveyors and making decisions about whether we take any disciplinary action. I've now moved over to the standards team and I'm in the middle of a project um, revising the rules of conduct, but also looking at sort of guidance and standards that help surveyors with their professional conduct as opposed to sort of how you know technically you survey and I've got a long career in sort of professional regulation and complaints handling so I've worked for an ombudsman and um, for some different professional regulators so uh, that's my background. Super great to have you here and Peter hi Peter. Hi Marion Um, I'm the director of policy at the property ombudsman and what I am not is a surveyor but what I have been doing probably for the last, I don't know, it's about 25 years now, is dealing with complaints in the property sector in one form or another. So I started off as the ombudsman as an adjudicator and pretty much dealt with complaints there on in. So what I've got is, well, what hopefully is going to be helpful for everybody is it is a good perspective on how to do good complaint handling and what bad complaint handling looks like and all and all the things you can do to sort of mitigate things at, at the first point of contact. So hopefully I'll be able to chip in with some comments like that as we go along. 
Super. And my background is in uh, as a surveyor, but also in defect and valuation complaints and claims. And I've looked at everything from allegations of conduct against surveyors, uh, what we'd call PVQs, post-valuation queries, which then turn into a complaint. And there's an argument of, you know, when is it a a query and when does it turn into a complaint all the way right way through to dealing with some really big juicy cases and there's a couple of things that I've learned over the years as I've dealt with cases but the key thing that always comes back is that surveyors do not go out to do a bad job and when they they get a complaint on a job that they've done they will invariably start with I knew that one was going to be a problem or that vendor was a pain in the butt, or uh, that client gave me a list of 36 things they wanted me to look at before I'd even got into the property, you know, or there's things about sort of not trusting their gut instincts as to this job might need a bit more care, or there's something extra that they need to follow through, or perhaps it's should have been a building survey rather than a home buyer survey or something. And so there's generally always been something like that around it. And also the customers don't just complain about one thing. They complain about absolutely everything that ever happened to them. Because when they get to a point to write it down and make it more formal, they then get it all off their chest. And that's where sometimes when you've got really embarrassing administration problems of someone didn't phone back when they said they would or you know there was a typo somewhere you're always on the back foot in trying to then defend or to make clear the the circumstances of the of the actual complaint and the uh, the survey but generally that surveyors don't go to do a bad job and that uh, around them the processes the structure that they put in place the guidance that they read or don't read all of those things and the, the level of experience and training that they've got all comes to, at that point, when you're at a property, making a decision, you know, and writing your report, it all leads up to that to give you the wisdom to know what to do in the moment. And if we're not set up for success, invariably, we don't succeed, no matter how hard you try. And sometimes you can bend over backwards for customers and they're still not happy. And what I hear a lot of sometimes in the Surveyor Hub and again, over my career is that some surveyors love customers and some people, some surveyors are not a fan. And I also think we need to remember that we're in a service industry. You know, sometimes we talk about products in terms of surveys. They're not. There is very much a service industry and we're providing our opinion, subjective or, or otherwise. And so it's really important that we engage with, uh, with people. I also find, and perhaps we can then start with, with you, um, Chrissy, just talking about what should happen on a complaint, because I often find that surveyors don't understand their obligations to uh, of what they need to do when they handle a complaint and what the RICS expects. And we can put links in, in the show notes on this of the, the particular guidance and policies that, that are there. But can you talk through what should happen? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I'm going to assume for the purpose of this that the surveyor is working in an RICS regulated firm, all of whom should have a complaints handling procedure and your staff should know about it and uh, and that should be followed in dealing with the complaint. But complaints handling procedures are relatively straightforward documents, really. What they do is they provide the complainant or, or your client, you know, who before they're a complainant, with some reassurance that if they have a problem, they know how to handle it. They, uh, they understand how they should get in touch with the firm, that somebody senior will take a look at it and respond to them and that they will uh, if they're then still not happy, if that can't be resolved, there's somewhere else that they can go. So that's what a complaints handling procedure does. There's some information on our website about what the the policy, what the requirements around having a complaints handling procedure are. But there's also an example of complaints handling procedure that firms can use on the website. So you don't need to start from scratch. You can use the uh, the experience of, of other firms that to help you to, if you're starting um, a new firm or you want to review your own procedure. There's also an example of how to keep a complaints log because one of the really important things for a firm to do is to keep a record of how they've handled complaints because that's helpful if somebody then comes to RICS. It's also helpful for your insurer and various other things, but it's helpful for you as a firm. You know, you want to see if there are lessons learned from complaints, if there are, are patterns and things that you can improve to help. 
The other thing that RICS has on its website is some complaints handling guidance. So that takes you through thinking about how you handle complaints with your insurer. So when do you have to involve your insurer? How does that work? Thinking about how you can help to um, avoid complaints using your terms of engagement, but also sort of step by step through a complaint handling procedure. So um, thinking about why a, a complainant might complain, what sort of how you should handle the initial contact, what your initial letter back should say, what to do if you do need some more investigation, and then what to do if it escalates. So I think it's actually a really having spent a lot of my career dealing with complaints. And when you deal with complaints, you get complained about yourself a lot. So I understand, you know, this isn't just from the point of view of of someone who looks at complaints about other people. You know, the kind of people that complain about surveyors will also tend to complain about the people they then complain to. So, you know, but I think that it's got some really helpful just tips and reminders in there about some of the, you know, just some of that stuff about reminding yourself that actually it's not personal and that there are lots of reasons why people might complain and lots of things that you can do about it. And you don't have to be defensive. It's not necessarily a sign that you've done something wrong. It's really hard because it can feel like a personal attack on you. And it's so, so true to try and take the emotion out of it. You know, we can very easily, if we think about it, turn into, you know, that customer's being really unkind and unfair. But actually, they're very hurt and upset and scared. And it, it comes back to the context of we're helping people, you know, in the residential context in their homes and it's their security. And just like any mama bear and tiger, you know, you're going to fight to protect your, your home. And that sort of primal instinct comes out. Interesting. You saying about, uh, people complain about, about you as the, 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 the handler. I recall a number of years ago now, my job title was customer care manager. And I dealt with a complaint and it was to do with a down valuation, a housing association staircasing job on a new build. It was a disaster written all over it from the start. And the father was writing rather than the daughter. It was one of a really sort of complex one. And I did everything I could. Me and my team did everything that we could within the remit that we had to help the, the, you know, the, this poor lady. And we offered that there was a problem in terms of admin or something. And we offered a, a refund of part of the fee and they signed the, the acceptance form and they addressed it to Marion Morrison was my surname then. Marion Morrison, customer, does not care manager. Just to have the final words. And I kept that envelope because it really, you know, really sort of, for me, put it into perspective that no matter what you do, sometimes you just can't satisfy people. But just knowing that you've done, you've done everything that you can. You talked there about complaint handling procedures. And I think it's really important that surveyors, yes, read the guidance, but then construct their own complaints procedures and really understand what it means. But when do you issue that complaint procedure, because sometimes you can be in conversation with people. It can be, you know, a a query. And at what point does it then become a complaint? And at what point do you then have to issue that that procedure? So my position on this is that I would be really open about my complaints handling procedure. I think it's a brilliant thing to have. And I think that I would be putting it on my website if I had one. I would be sending it out with initial letters, you know, terms of engagement to clients. And, you know, if somebody somebody seems dissatisfied, there's less harm in sending out a complaints handling procedure when somebody doesn't want it than battling on and on and someone thinking that they were making a complaint and you haven't issued your complaint handling procedure and then they feel like they have to go back to the beginning. But we talk about complaints as being an expression of dissatisfaction. So that's incredibly wide. If somebody contacts you and says they're dissatisfied with your service, I mean, A, the thing to do is to try to put it right as soon as you can. You don't have to wait for a formal complaint and, and you know, nobody would want to do that. But there is, I can see no harm in, you know, if someone's contacted you to say they're dissatisfied, you email back to say, hopefully, really sorry to hear about that. Here's what I think I can do. But by the way, here's my complaints handling procedure. And if you feel like you want to use it, please do, do get back in touch. But I hope that what I've been able to do will sort it out. 
I think the formal answer in the policy is that you issue your complaints handling procedure to a client or anyone to whom you owe duty of care when you get an expression of dissatisfaction. But I would say, you know, err on the side of caution and send it out mm. whenever it's very, you think someone's It's very much about, yeah, it's very much about the relationship that you have with your clients. And, and I think some surveyors treat surveys as very transactional, you know, whereas we need to be thinking about the relationship that we have with our client right from the start, right to the very end. And obviously then it's a sales opportunity for anything else that might happen. And I often talk about being, you know, the almost like the family surveyor rather than just that one-off transactional um, uh, purchase. Let's move on to Peter, um, because I want to talk about the, so you have your complaints procedure you issue it, you have some stages. So I worked, used to work for a large company and I ran a large team and we would deal with cases. But there's sort of like a, a one-step or a two-step process to alternative, what you call alternative? Dis- dispute resolution. Dispute resolution, that's the one. Yes. Uh, yeah. ADR. And so for, for a larger firm, I, you know, I managed a lot of those things before they then got to but for an SME they won't necessarily have a team of experts dealing with with that so when you've got that that process within your business you need to look at it properly but then there's this you know what happens next and what happens with this sort of third party redress yeah um I think you know just just echoing what Chrissy said I think that the key to all of this is in the complaints procedure of the business really and that needs to be really really clear about what's going to happen and that should explain the different stages and then what happens and where you need to take it if you're not satisfied afterwards. So, you know, is it going to be a referral to an ombudsman? What What is the dispute resolution bit at the end of it? So all of that needs to be in there. I'll also echo what Chrissy said about providing it upfront as soon as possible. I mean, I think if you're brave enough to be providing this with your terms of business, what you're showing to that consumer is, you're not afraid of complaints. And it's something which, um, you know, it's something which is going to do your reputation in the world of good. And also, if you've got that very, very clearly on your website, what it does is it allows people to contact you with their grievances in a controlled way and in a way that you can handle them better. So, so it focuses them. What will really, really frustrate consumers out there is having to search for all this information. If they have to search for it, they are going to be upset even more upset by the time they actually contact you. So the more accessible you are, the better. And I'd certainly echo that as well in terms of um, if you've got any social media accounts, make sure you check those regularly, direct people to that point on your website where they can make a complaint, all of those sorts of things. But in terms of the different stages, going back to your original question, I think really it's about firstly acknowledging the complaint, to say that you've got it, you've received it, and that you're going to do something about it. Then make sure you come back within a, the right period of time to do that. Um, make sure it's in, in, in writing and it's very, very clear and that you actually address all the points. And again, um, don't be defensive. If a mistake's been made, I think, you know, the best thing you can do is actually acknowledge it and apologize. And then, you know, if you, if you can convey that sense of empathy, you're more likely to get matters resolved there. And then obviously, if it starts, if, if you've got a very, someone who's very unhappy, um, they're going to come back again. And then you need to issue some sort of final viewpoint on it because you need to then close it off. If it's obvious that you're not going to resolve it, you need to close it off. But in closing it off, you need to tell them where they can go next. And that's the important thing. That is the important that is the important thing, Peter. And it's important to do it politely, not where they can get off next. Absolutely. But what <laughs> they need to, to do next. And that is the over my my years, I've worked with all kinds of firms across the the whole sector, not just not just in the corporate sector. And the the tone of the letters, yeah. you know, the frustration. And you just think, take a step back. Yeah. Try and see for some perspective. And sometimes you and the surveyor are not the right person to write that letter. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm pleased you said that, you know, you're not a surveyor because <laughs> in, in the um, complaints teams that I've run, the best people were not surveyors, but they were interested in property yeah. and they cared about people. Mm. And so they could take a real sort of view of the whole thing of, you know, does this make sense? Mm. Do I trust what's being said? Are the responses and replies um, authentic and is there trust in there but given that this is these are highly 
emotive situations. So I used to sort of try and find those people that would get it, but specifically, you know, weren't surveyors, but had the confidence to say, this doesn't seem quite right. Absolutely. I think think if you have that ability to be able to put yourselves in that consumer's shoes, then you've, you've got half the battle won because you're seeing things from their their perspective. And if you can see things from their perspective, you're more likely to work out what it is that's going to resolve the issue. If you take the stance where you're going to be defensive, you're more likely to escalate the issue, and especially if something actually has gone wrong. But um, I think it's it's really important, even even if the, the complaint is spurious, that there's nothing in it. If you start responding in a defensive way, it's not going to go away. It's actually going to get worse. So you need there needs to be a degree of empathy there, basically. And and half the time it's just managing consumers' expectations mm. because actually they're expecting some, you know, perhaps what they're expecting from you is not actually what you're able to give, but it's but, but it's about explaining it in a way, and certainly not in a condescending way, but explaining it in a way that they're going to accept and, and, and I, understand. I, yeah, and I think that term managing expectations is often misused in that we've got to manage their expectations, tell them what they're going to get, dictate, when actually it's not about that. It's about, I come back to this, it's a relationship and you're you're nurturing them along the way. And sometimes you might find that the service that you offer is not what they need. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. and being able to adapt and, you know, the changes that are coming out in the home survey standard, they create, more opportunity for surveyors to really think about the kind of service that they want to offer their clients. Yes, you've got the levels of inspection, but if you really want to add on whistles and bells for the kind of client that you want, so as you make these things clear, there's greater opportunity to give the kind of service that you mm. want and also match that to your to, to their needs. Peter, let me ask you about, so when you get to that, that stage of uh, what we'd call a deadlock letter, yeah. you know, of, you know, we're not going to get any further then there's the as surveyors we then have to offer third party redress of, of I think is am I right in saying the property ombudsman is one option yeah. for surveyors yeah. but that's all in the uh, in the guidance that we'll put a link to uh, but so what then happens so a surveyor does a deadlock letter and then is it up to the customer to then contact you yeah so your deadlock letters should basically give them the options what they've got so um so if if there's a goodwill offer you can put in there you know if you're going to accept it it's in full and final settlement if you're still unhappy then you can go to property ombudsman for example and then it's up to that consumer to bring the complaint to us at that point so if they do then obviously what we will do we will assess it to see if it meets the criteria so other, has it been referred to us within the right timescales? If we're getting a complaint about something that happened five, six, seven years ago and, they, and all of that, you know, there are times where, you know, there's, they, they could be time barred in this. So, so we need to do some basic checks to make sure it falls within what we call terms of reference. And then at that point, what we will then do is then progress the complaint. So what that means is we will go back to the business and ask them for evidence to support their side and go back to the consumer to ask them for evidence uh, to support their side. Because once we've got both of those evidence packs in, then we can sit down and we can be, begin um, an assessment and investigation of it. And then, you know, we will look at that against the RICS guidance, which is out there and all of those things, and then get to a point we can make a proposed decision on it, whether that's supporting the complaint. I say complaint, complaints, because there are always multiple complaints, and or whether we don't support it and with a potential for financial award. So it's the process in a nutshell, really. Now, when I used to run a complaints team, sometimes... I would let it run to the ombudsman. Mm. It was ombudsman services property as it uh, as it was back then, because sometimes when you get to that deadlock, and sometimes some of these cases are difficult, you do need yeah. a third party to to come in. I think for a lot of SMEs, it's cost because it's that the, they aren't these free at point of use for the consumer. So if a, if a complaint goes to the ombudsman, the surveyor has to pay. So one of the things I used to do was to let it run to an ombudsman because sometimes that's the best place 
for them to to take it forward. And you know what? And sometimes there are customers that you've just had enough of. No, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you're not <laughs> going to get any any further, and you yeah. just you just hand it hand it over. Can I ask you, Peter, before I come on to and, and we'll talk to bring in Angela and, uh, and Michael in, in a minute? What are the, some of the common mistakes you see surveyors make? Because you talked about timescales. Is it inside outside scope? And from my experience, there's a lot of administrative things that can make a complaint fall down or get worse rather than the actual alleged incident that that happened. But what are some of the things, trends that you see? I I think you're right in terms of actually it's it's not always the alleged incident. I think um, think that what we see in terms of the common themes are themes which are common across all sorts of complaints, not just for surveyors. Invariably, there's some sort of communication failure. That is, whether that's happened at the start because somebody hasn't explained properly what the service is that they're getting, or whether it's happened further down the line where somebody hasn't done something that they've promised. Those are the ones we see the most of. Secondly, the most common is failings in complaint handling. And actually, when people get a complaint, not taking it seriously, not following the procedure, if they have a procedure, which again, if they haven't got one, that's a failing in itself, and actually not following that procedure. So so those are the main themes. In terms of surveyors um, specifically, the, the cases we've seen is just, just things being missed on inspections, basically. I mean, it's pretty common. But then what invariably, those sorts of things can be put right reasonably quickly, but it's down to the attitude of the business and and to to put that right quite quickly. And um, and if they do that quickly, invariably, there's not a complaint. But then if they don't, then it's about it's more about the communication than the actual problem in the first bit, if, if well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'd like to see, and I don't know whether it's something that RICS and the ADR providers provide is actually some data and stats because very often what we see in you know cpd days for, for surveyors is the pi firms talking about you know where surveyors get it wrong and they will always talk i mean forever the trends have generally been dampness yeah. structural movement roofs and chimneys they are the the defects that will sort of most likely happen but they're not necessarily the cause of the complaint which could be conducts, poor admin, poor handling. And we never get to see any of that. So I'd really like okay. to see some some more insight as to how firms can get better at handling these things. And hopefully, you know, this this recording of a podcast will be be the start of the uh, start of a, a conversation. I'll start with Angela because I can see Michael's writing loads of notes and is desperate to speak. And having interviewed him on a podcast once, I know I know best to start with someone else. So uh, Angela, tell me a bit about you know how you feel about complaints and your experience of complaints as a surveyor. Nobody likes a complaint, do they? It's just like opportunity for your stomach to just feel absolutely awful and then for all of your workload to just be a complete nightmare because as soon as that hits, so many emotions happen and you feel awful. But we've been, touch wood, relatively lucky. But we did have a complaint which did actually go through the ombudsman process. And I would say that it was actually reassuring how the process went through. I didn't think I would feel that, but it was definitely a really interesting learning curve. It's a funny situation where prior to actually quoting for the job, alarm bells went off because the client said, could you send me a copy of your PI certificate, which was alarming. You know, but then we talked about it and we said, well, you know, within our firm, we said, well, you know, what was there to fear? If we do a good job, why would we need to worry about that? But I think the alarm bells were still there that this could be a problem. But anyway, so we took the job on and went ahead and did what we believe to be a really good job, a very thorough inspection, a very comprehensive report and so on and so forth. But subsequently, there was a problem and it was very much due to an area of the building which was very concealed. And we had said that that this part of the building was full of stored items and that this did heavily restrict the inspection 
and that we had concerns about certain issues being likely to, not necessarily likely, but could happen. Okay. So there was, it had been flagged up. There was a possible problem. And in an ideal world, you would be able to see everything and we couldn't at the time. So it was very clear. He rang us after the event, spoke to us about it and so on. But anyway, he bought the property, moved in and as one might imagine, the problem that we'd anticipated did happen. But it was all really focused mainly on the fact that we hadn't moved everything out of this area, okay? Anyway, the call came in and we arranged to go down to the property, meet him, I think it was about 48 hours later, And it was handy that there's two of us, okay? And I think that's just a hugely helpful thing. So we'd already discussed, right, when we go there, I'll do the note-taking, he'll do the talking. But also, very fortunately, both of us had attended the original inspection. So that was a really handy, fortuitous situation. And it was really important to get him talking and listen really carefully to absolutely everything he said because some of the things he said were really useful subsequently and they were very simple little comments that actually added to the evidence okay so then we were about to go and unfortunately it's at that point when you're about to leave that things get a bit tense and I think we sort of thought about how we would manage that in the future to try and make sure that there were clear boundaries about how you have that conversation about. And at the end of our meeting, this is what we're going to do and so on and so forth. Anyway, it was fine, but it was just you could feel that kind of awkwardness. And we went away and we put pen to paper. And obviously we were already in touch with our insurers and so on and so forth. But there was a, you know, there was a flow of emails which weren't great and so on. And then we put forward our comments. But obviously the the difficulty I find is in all of this, you're trying to manage the client's expectations, but also you've got to talk to your insurers throughout this. And sometimes that is a really difficult thing because you've got, that's an extra time issue, which is tricky when you are trying to make sure that you're doing everything really promptly, but you've got to then send everything off and wait for your insurers to come back and tell you what to do. That's a really interesting point. When I worked for a corporate, we would do all of that, mm. you know, and, and time made a massive difference getting yeah. back promptly. We would work with senior surveyors who might reinspect the property, put together a good, you know, a good response, make a judgment on whether a, you know, a, a payment or an award or an apology uh, might be needed. And it, it was swift. As an SME, working with SMEs, the experience is different in that, in that, you know, when do you notify your PI insurer? Because they don't want to know about every little dissatisfaction, you know, so it's how do you decide what you notify and not and then you know yeah then you you draft your letter and then you wait for someone to come back mm. and I've got all these years of writing letters back <laughs> to people and somebody comes back and edits my letter which doesn't sound like it's come from me mm. you know and that authenticity piece comes out, and it took days so it, it's a really difficult thing but you know if you want your PI insurance and now it's mm. so hard for firms so hard for firms and on that note, and we'll put a link in the podcast, if anybody is struggling with PI, you must speak to RICS, the ARP team, who are really helping a lot of firms at the moment who, who are struggling for various reasons, not necessarily just because they've got uh, got complaints. But yeah, yeah and, and the pressure, the pressure on you to deal with the case, to deal with your PI insurer, to go about and do your job because you need to keep your business going and keep a roof over your head, whatever else is going on in your life is incredibly stressful, Mm, incredibly stressful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we obviously went back to the client and said, we've reviewed the situation and unfortunately for you, we do not believe that we've done anything wrong. And, you know, a few weeks later, then we had the, the email come in from the Ombudsman Service to say that he had taken the, the the matter to them. And, you know, you always remember that when you see that flash up on your screen, you think, oh, no, here we go. 
But anyway, what we did at that point really was to just look really carefully at everything that was set out in the guidance from the ombudsman to make sure that we could put together every piece of evidence that we possibly could and to make sure that our submission was really, really well cross-referenced because I thought the most important thing here that we can do, I mean, we know what we've done. We know we've done a good job. We've got lots of evidence, but let's make it an easy document to read. And also let's cut out any emotion because that's not going to help anything. So it's a case of, right, okay, let's just stick to the facts. Okay. And uh, much as this whole thing is doing our head in, that doesn't need to be in that report at all. Okay. So you put that together. I would say it probably took two full days of me working on that and absolutely nothing else. And then obviously us sitting down and going over and over and over and over and over. One of the brilliant things that we had was we had some really superb evidence, which was really helpful. And I would say over the years, the amount of digital photographs we take are just immense. And I would say, don't worry about storage. You can get loads of storage. That's not the problem. Have the evidence and make sure that you've got general shots to show what you can't see. You know, that might sound really stupid, but show what you see and show what you can't see, you know, make that really, really obvious. So anyway, that obviously then went off to the PI people who then came back and said, actually, we really like your submission. In fact, it's one of the best that we've seen, which was a small chink of light in a very dark place. And off that went and we were very, very pleased that it came back to say that, you know, there was no award against us and no action for us to take. Obviously, that wasn't the end of it <laughs> because he then uh, took it to appeal but had no further evidence. And so, you know, the ombudsman was satisfied that there was no reason to change their orig original thoughts. But, you know, it was a very exhausting and upsetting process, but we've learned a lot from it. So mm -hmm. there's always an upside. And I think one of the key things I would say from my experience of putting quite a lot through ombudsman in, in the years is to make it easy. You know, it's to make it easy read, is to spend the time to reference the documents and to label mm. the photos properly. And that, that just helps make it much, you know, much clearer. Michael, I know you've had, I'll say you've had lots of complaints that make <laughs> you sound awful. Thanks. But I know Thanks. you've had, I've had you and you've had some challenges in, in various ways. Tell us about that. But I'm sort of like, uh, Marion, you were saying I was writing down a few things and, uh, out of the complaints that we've got, uh, I think they go into three categories. Genuinely, where we've missed something is the first category. An influence of the third party, uh, that's the second category of uh, complaints. And then the, the final one, just basically nasty. Out of the three, the genuine ones, I would say 10% out of the uh, complaints that we've had. Uh, we paid out two uh, cash settlements on uh, cases, and I'm happy to uh, share that. 80% is an influence of a third party. And that would be dampened timber specialist or a roofer or a builder who, uh, well, you know, the surveyors should have done it this way and all this type of thing. Or, or, or it's usually somebody's Uncle Bob who's an yeah. expert Well, we builder. have one on the, on the, uh, the, the verge de plastic verge detailing and birds nesting uh, recently. And then the final one is nasty. Uh, and that's pure nasty. Now, what, uh, what I do is I always ring up the complainant and um, we have a, a complaints log. I always tell my insurer I've got a good relationship with their insurer and they haven't um, penalised us in terms of any premium loading, uh, you know, for uh, uh, complaints. I've had, uh, as I say, paid out two. One was for three pieces of mouse poo uh, found in a roof space. And this is where a colleague uh, actually had a digital photograph of it. So we just said, fair enough. You know, uh, it, it, they, I think they overplayed it, but that's just my own view of it. It's one of those where I didn't want to be going to Peter and saying, look, you know, uh, under disclosure, we've got a, a picture there showing three pieces of mouse poo. You know, uh, we paid two and a half thousand pounds or so two thousand four hundred ninety seven pounds because our excess was two thousand five hundred. And that was led by a solicitor's practice. The other one was asbestos in a, in a detached garage, uh, which had an attachment to, of a utility area. Um, a colleague had pointed out asbestos in part of the building, uh, but uh, they said that the they were going to uh, build an extension on the side of the property for a home bar report. So I took a view on that and I paid that out. And uh, we actually paid to have the asbestos removed. The garage is still there, of course, but that's how it is. 
Influence of third parties had a claim in Cumbria, somewhere north, on a Marley Modern roof, where the roof had been to the property in a 19, late 1980s semi, the Marley Modern roof on it. And the roofer said the roof tiles uh, reached the, the, the end of the life expectancy. Why didn't the surveyor point this out? We had lots of photographs of the roof, inside and outside. And with respect, there's nothing wrong with it. You can't see anything. But the tiles have become spongy, and therefore it, it was uh, something that would require an imminent replacement. That's gone to the MP, and that's gone to, we're looking at trading standards for that, because there are many roofs in and around that particular locality that have been replaced and in other areas. There's no necessity to do that, but it's evidence, Angela, is the way that we approached it. You know, the usual things went out, the complaints handling procedure and, the you know, the uh, you know the response within the specified time, but a very detailed response, looking at BRE specifications for Marley Modern Roofs, looking about the product specification from Marley itself, letter from Marley to say that the life expectancy was minimum 60 years, et cetera, et cetera, and heard nothing from it. So... There are many, that's the majority of claim, uh, complaints that we have. And the final ones are nasties. I mean, we've, I've had two, re, uh, two over the last uh, eight years that have been particularly nasty. Well, three, uh, one that went to regulation right in the early days of setting up a practice, uh, Chris, and uh, we had, uh, it cost us £2,500 in solicitor's fees to defend uh, on, a, on a home buyer report. There are all sorts of uh, unusual allegations made by the vendor, uh, which was promoted by the estate agent, who's local to us. Uh, first one is that the surveyor wasn't qualified, and uh, we proved it. We, you know, there's his certificate uh, in terms of being uh, qualified. The second one is that I'd misrepresented uh, the practice, and uh, we said, well, what's the basis of that? Uh, there was no basis of it. And then the other one was on condition ratings, where they'd produced, they hadn't produced uh, but they've made a uh, a uh, allegation that uh, we'd overstated our condition ratings. So we uh, we uh, but we because we had all the site notes, the photographs, and the evidence uh, collected, we refuted each and every one of them, and we uh, batted that away. That was pre-property ombudsman had just set up the practice, so it came through a major law firm, uh, Chris, and that uh, led to a, a massive amount of stress uh, within the practice. It was me, myself and Mark who were dealing with it. Mark was a subject of the complaint, and um, Mark is still with us, uh, you know, sort of six uh, years uh, later. We learned a lot from that. The other ones are in an expert witness case where someone uh, threatened to murder me as a result of uh, a determination against the surveyor, and I'd like to speak to that surveyor at some stage just to tell him how it feels uh, for you, your family uh, to be threatened by uh, someone uh, where you, my duty of care was to the court. So it goes out of the ombudsman side of things, doesn't it, this Peter? Mm-hmm. It goes to the court. And but what we have and what I decided to do after after that one, uh, and they put things on our uh, Facebook page, you know, about me being a liar and, you know, this type of thing of being corrupt and, you know, all the rest of it there. Is that we served him with a? Well, the police were involved, and we served him with a uh, an injunction. So if he wants to make these false allegations again, he's going to get himself in trouble. And the final one, Mary, just before I finish, is I had a complaint recently in Grange over Sands. I've been caring for my dad up there, you know, through the local estate agent, selling my dad's house. And this is a charter surveyor who is unknown, who's a vendor of a, of a flat there. He alleged that we left a Velux window open on the fifth of November when the uh, the lads did a uh, a building survey, they qualified the lads. Uh, so we left the window open and it's wet wet the inside of this flat and uh, what are we going to do about it, to quote the, the vendor. What we did have is we had a video of it being opened and shot. So we sent that video in and we've heard nothing since there. So collection of evidence is absolutely vital to my colleagues up and down the country. And if you can learn from my experience of being kicked, you know, on, you know in terms of a claim and have the fear in the early days, I'm not frightened of her anymore. I challenge them now. But I look at the evidence properly. And if we're guilty, the wrong word to use, but if there's a case there, you negotiate your way out of it. But if not, then you stick by your guns and have a proper go back. And lots of it resonates with what I've heard and seen and, and talked to surveyors over the years. And absolutely, there's a there's that emotion of, we've got to defend our businesses, we've got to defend our reputations. And if we feel we need to take action, we should. I think there's a massive piece of work in terms of how surveyors, we talk about that, manage expectations with clients. I think it's about building relationships and that door is always open and we can have that that conversation with people, but also have good conversations so that they understand the boundaries and the rules of the game, the rules of, of, of what they're actually paying us to do as a as a service and what we can and can't do. And 
you know, and, and, and really improve the whole customer experience. And that's what complaints and claims taught me wasn't just about all the, the juicy defect stuff that I like. It was, hang on a minute, we can prevent the majority of this to a point. And we're very much in a culture now where people will go on social media and they will call you out. And very often it's because they don't know how to go to you as a firm and, you know, as Peter said earlier on, how to find the right route to talk to you. The one thing I think we do need to be mindful of is we don't really know how many complaints, claims there are against surveyors across the whole UK. There's no, you know, for lots of reasons, I understand, there's no real data out there because everyone keeps it under cloak and dagger. And for surveyors who've had a claim, it can feel like a source of shame that you've had a claim, that it's gone to ombudsman. You're dealing with this by yourself. It'll affect your PI. And I've, over my time, spoken to surveyors who have uh, particularly one-man bands working on their own, who've literally been on the verge of suicide because their business is going to fold because they're so ashamed. And that's, that's sorry. That's a sorry state. That said, we have to put it in context. Not every surveyor will get a complaint or claim. Most surveyors will have something in their careers. Myself, you know, I spent most of my career dealing with this stuff. I've had two claims. The irony is it was my very first job as a new surveyor doing a survey. And I got it because I was inexperienced and not very well supported. And the second claim I had, would you believe, it was on my last survey that I did before I, and I had to sign up, you know, uh, finish writing up six jobs, you know, finish my day job, move house, relocate and start a new job on the Monday. And then the pressure that I was under, and I just, it was just sloppy, you know, and I can understand why these things happen, but we've got to talk more about it and not talk about it as a source of shame because in context, it's a few percent of all the jobs that are done and all the good work. And when I see surveyors share the empathy that comes out, and we see this in the surveyor hub, when a surveyor has, has said, I've got a problem, I am struggling, we will always signpost to Lionheart. They can't help with the, the legal, the PI, the financial, but they can absolutely offer support. And the other thing that's been really amazing to see over the past few months is the Heart and Large case with Richard Large, You know, one of the biggest cases that we've seen as residential surveyors in many years. And a GoFundMe page was set up And as we stand here, what's it here today, it's got over £15,000 worth of donations. Now, whether you agree with the complaint or not, the swell of compassion and support for people is, is absolutely there. And so I think putting these things into context, talking more about it, we can absolutely learn about it. And as a community of surveyors, we can move forward. Chrissy, I wanted to ask you a question because we've got the how to handle complaints, but then... Sometimes people will then go to our ICS to complain about the surveyor, which is a, a different sort of type of complaint and stream. And that can be incredibly stressful. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happens and, and you know, how, what the process is like? Absolutely. So our ICS receives is somewhere in the region of 1,200 complaints a year, which isn't a lot. Again, you know, picking up on your point, when you think about the number of, of members and firms, so I think it is important to kind of put, keep that in perspective. Also, then an awful lot of what happens is that the complaint is directed back to the firm because it hasn't been through the complaints handling procedure or it's directed towards alternative dispute resolution if it's a person who can use that. There's then a triage process where we look at the evidence and we look at whether the allegation is serious. I think it's really important to say that RICS accepts that people make mistakes and making mistakes is not a reason why we would necessarily take disciplinary proceedings. If you've made a really serious mistake or you've done something wrong deliberately, then we might take disciplinary action. But there is no harm in doing what Michael was talking about, which is accepting when you've looked at the evidence that maybe there's something that you could have done better. And admitting that to the client and and doing something about it, that is, you know, that doesn't mean in any way that your complaint will be treated differently when it comes to our ICS. Once the complaint is triaged, um, if there is, if it looks like it might be serious enough, or we can't really tell what the complaint is about, we might come out to the, the firm. The one thing I would say is that sometimes some of the initial letters we write look quite scary. They look quite scary because going into process that might decide on disciplinary proceedings 
can be quite a serious matter. And we want, it's important from a legal point of view that people understand that this is a formal process that they might be going into and exactly what it is that are the allegations that they need to respond to. It doesn't mean that RICS has made a decision. It doesn't mean that we're not, that we don't want to have discussions with you, that we don't want to see your evidence, that we won't make a fair decision. But it's really important from the beginning that you understand that we're formally looking at allegations if that's the case. Sometimes the letter will come out and say, we don't really understand what's going on here. Can you help us with some evidence? But sometimes if there is some evidence to support a complaint, we will write and say, we've got this evidence, we've got this allegation, and we need you to formally respond to it. But it's exactly the same as the process that Angela described. What we are hoping to get back from you is evidence which allows us not to proceed with the complaint or allows us to say, okay, something's gone wrong here, but you know what, it's not a serious breach. Um, The firm is putting it right and therefore we don't need to take action. The cases we take disciplinary action on are people who completely stick their head in the sand and do nothing, don't cooperate with us, don't help us, won't won't, uh, help with the investigation, or cases where something very serious has gone wrong. People are repeatedly doing work they're not competent to do, people are dishonest, people aren't looking after client money properly. Those are the kinds of cases that end up before tribunals, not, you know, if you handle them properly, the kind of cases where people have made the kind of mistakes that all of us will make at some point in our career. So when we get this information, we get these complaints in, whether it's from vendors or from customers or banks and lenders, whoever, it's what we then do with it. And one of the things I used to do when I ran a complaints team was not just to keep a complaints log, but to keep the lock of all the dissatisfactions, all the queries, and to really risk manage and say, does this mean I need to change something in my business? Because I got to a point where we had lots of of complaints coming in, but we were batting them away. And therefore, it was all to do with the managing expectations, the letting people know what they needed to do, where and when. And so keeping track of everything that comes in and then considering, do you need to take action on it? And particularly when it comes to vendors, because vendors, we don't have a lot of interaction with. And when we go into the home, sometimes they have no idea who we are, what we're going to do. We're on their territory. You know, can be very sort of, they feel very vulnerable. You know, the, the stakes are high in terms of the, the sale proceeding and that kind of thing. And so sometimes there's a bit of work that we need to do there in terms of customer care, customer service and information. And so collating all of that information together can help us look at our customer journey, what we do, how we interact with people, the messages that we send out in marketing, all of those things. But they also then leads us on to things like liability caps, you know, things like an excess, you know, just like with you with your car insurance, you know, but you're building it up sort of based on evidence and what you see. And you might then start to see trends with what you have with certain types of clients. You might get certain complaints from downsizers that you wouldn't get from first-time buyers or vice versa. And you then get to tailor your your service and what you offer and, and how you offer it to, to your client. So I think it's really important to, to pull that pull that together. But look, we've had a really interesting conversation on complaints. Thank you so much for joining me today. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.